Hey, this is Jim, and you're listening to the podcast edition of the Jim Toth Show. Hear us live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. We're going to continue the conversation now with Marion Willis of St. Boniface Street Links. Good afternoon, Marion. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, good afternoon. So uh, we saw the piece Brittany Greenslade did on Global News yesterday, and I just talked to Constable Jay Murray, and and I wanted to have you on because I, I think you said some really valuable things on youth crime and especially the rise in the violence of it, youth crime overall being down. Um, let's get into, first of all, why you think it's happening, and then we'll get into where we could go to maybe try and help with that. But why do you think youth crime is on the rise? Well, you know, I I, I think really the perfect storm has been created. You know, if you think about it, we have uh, decades now of services to people being very brief, short-term services. That's the model that we moved to probably 20 years ago. Um, we have more and more young people aging out of child welfare uh, into homelessness without any real plan whatsoever, no supports. Um, we've have, we have a, a drug uh, epidemic that is six years now. Um, where we still don't really have a strategy to uh, to address the drug epidemic. There's no real focus uh, on that. Um, we've also had a pandemic uh, that really isolated people away from services for two years. And so I think I think if you look at all of that, you know, this is kind of the cu- the cumulative impact of that perfect storm. Um, people um, people's uh, uh, there's just so many people out there facing ch- facing challenges, and the thing with young people, with youth, uh, and this is particularly so if you're a young person who who has had to put a lot of energy into just surviving your childhood, you become really quite resourceful, um, and you'll just go to whatever means you need to to get your needs met, and, met, and that's what I'm seeing out there. Um, if you don't have housing, that means you don't have income supports, likely. So how do you meet your needs? You meet it uh, through uh, other means. The and then, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry, Marion. Finish your thought. Well, no, but that's that's really it, you know. And then, you know, uh, people, uh, young people, all kinds of people will uh, go to whatever means they have to to get whatever they can, that they can converge into currency to buy whatever it is uh, they're buying, whether it's food, drugs, clothes, whatever it might be. Uh, So I just think we've created the perfect storm here, and there isn't going to be a quick fix to this. Um, I've been saying uh, for a long time, you've been interviewing me, I'm thinking every single interview I've ever had Uh, with you and others, you know, I keep saying we need to have an overarching plan, a strategy that doesn't look at, uh, you know, homelessness and isolation of addiction and mental health and isolation of uh, crime and and, uh, violent crimes and even sometimes homicides. We need to now really start to understand that all of these social challenges that we face out there, they're all interconnected, they're all interrelated, and it's going to take uh, a multi-systemic plan um, with some really strong coordination mechanisms uh, to address some of this. And it's going to require all levels of government and the, uh, you know, the nonprofit sector uh, to come together, to work well together, uh, and um, 
uh, that's going to be the only the only way that we can actually begin to impact this. And Mar- I mean, it is really out of control. Yeah, and you know, Marion, sorry again, but I, I, last time I had you on, I'll be totally honest with you, well, not that it's nothing to hide, but you mentioned that, and you mentioned that an independent board that doesn't even include you, and while you were talking about that, I got some texts from several listeners that were saying they would love for you to be on this sort of overseeing thing. And then when you mentioned even independent from you, that doesn't people that don't have a stake in the different programs or police or things like that. And then even more texts came in and, and were disappointed that, it, but, but agreed with you that, that, so what are the chances of an independent thing being created and who could fund that? Well, you know, I, I have reason to be optimistic. I see, uh, and I'm actually experiencing it right now with conversations with the province I really do think that the province of Manitoba, various departments are realizing the challenges out there. They're much more in tune, I think, than they have been in the past. I think they really are looking for a way uh, to find some solutions. I I am uh, pretty optimistic that we will be seeing um, departments of the Manitoba government come together, maybe at an executive director level, maybe not at a ministerial level, but at an executive executive director level, maybe along with Winnipeg Fire Paramedic Services, Winnipeg Police, uh, other organizations, uh, where we can get around a table, you know, uh, fairly often for a while, just to sort of talk about what is going on out there and to help us all see just how interrelated these issues are and just how it is going to take a coordinated response, a plan, right, Uh, and that that every uh, department of the Manitoba government, justice, the various departments of justice and family services and uh, housing and mental health and addictions and EIA and employment and training and, and child welfare. Child welfare has got to be a part of this. You know, how we can kind of all come together, see the interrelatedness and come up with a multi-systemic plan. I am optimistic that that is going to happen um, and, you know, that's something that maybe we can talk about uh, another time. But there is something something coming down the pike that is actually, I think, going to, to trigger that to happen. Uh, but, you know, I, I will say it, I'm seeing things this year that I actually haven't uh, seen. I mean, I have seen them before, but not in the numbers. You know, we went into one fairly large encampment uh, this past week where there's several tents, you know, sort of in one area. And in that area, there's a gentleman living with his two sons. There's a mother. They're not related at all. Totally different family. A mom who is living with her son. The the, the son, the two sons, and well, all these kids have have aged out of care into homelessness and are living with their parents in encampments. How does that happen? Right. Yeah. You know. So you know, um, kids live what they learn, you know, and kids soon learn, you know, that if they don't have the support, they find a way to get their needs met. And they're not always going to be in a way, um, you know, that, uh, that we're going to appreciate. So we have to do a lot more. We have to find a way to fix this. And, you know, when I say an independent body, it's because part of the challenge with this whole sector is in the way that organizations are funded. Everybody's competing for the same money out of the same pot of money. Everybody's kind of got their own agendas. We've gone way too long, 
you know, with a single focus on homelessness, with a single focus on mental health and addictions, on a single focus of silos, you know, into everything. Uh, and we're going to have to find a way to break free of that. And moreover, we're going to have to find a, com- a way to come together, uh, respect that there are different models and different ways of doing things, support each other, realize that we're all uh, trying to achieve the same outcomes. And I think it's going to take an independent third party to pull that off. Always appreciate your time and your insight, Mary. And I look forward to the next time we discuss what you say is in the works for sure. And thank yeah, you. Yeah, for... I look forward to that too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Thanks All for right. doing that today. You let us know, of course. We'll be on it. Uh, Marion sure w- Willis of the St. Boniface Street Links. Still getting your texts on Hockey Canada. Thanks for the phone calls earlier and what you think needs to be done. A lot of people weighing in on the brass needs to go, but it doesn't uh, change your opinion and, and will still put their children in the game and other sports that are sort of having a reckoning right now as well. Uh, bringing in uh, right now um, Scott Burnside, who wrote a great piece for Daily Faceoff um, on Hockey Canada. Good afternoon, Scott. How are you? Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. I've read your piece twice now. And um, I, maybe we'll just start with that. Your overall impression of where Hockey Canada is at? Well, I, I think like a lot of people, it, it, there is a, a, a sense of shock or outrage at, um, at how this is all unfolded. And it's not one specific incident, obviously, um, but certainly has been, you know, the, has been brought into the light um, with the news of the 2000. 18 sexual assault of a young girl by eight members of the Canadian junior team. Um, how that entire incident was handled, um, the settlement that came after, where the monies came from to make that settlement. Um, and then the, the sort of the dominoes that have fallen since then. And of course, even news in the last four or five days, um, you know, starting with reporting by TSN's Rick Westhead and and others, and the Canadian Hockey Canada press release that outlined a, uh, another gang assault uh, that's believed to have taken place during the 0203 World Champ- Junior Championships in Halifax, um, and uh, police reopening the investigation in, in Halifax, sorry, in London, and opening an investigation into the uh, alleged incident in, in Halifax 20 years ago. And so we talk a lot about culture and hockey and, and we talk about it at the NHL level and we talk about how to, to make change. And, and I think really, you know, given the importance of the game in the country and given the importance of hockey Canada to creating an environment that, that should be a safe haven, should be a place for people to grow and to learn and to understand what boundaries are, the exact opposite has happened. And so I think that's what we're seeing, you know, the, certainly the questions in Ottawa with the um, uh, the MPs on the committee who were addressing uh, right up until a few moments ago, uh, Hockey Canada leaders, and, and, and what what to do from here. And I think it's uh, the problem is it's an easy thing to say, you know, clear it from top to bottom or, you know, push leadership out. In fact, Scott Smith, the head of Hockey Canada, was asked, if he would resign today by members of parliament, he said he would not. So uh, I think the question then becomes, well, what happens next? What's the mechanism to make these kinds of changes? And I think that's really the critical point we're at. 
And how do you affect change? It has to start at the top. Okay, well, how does how does that happen? Uh, who who should be involved in what happens next? And I think that's you know that it's it's hard to get your arms around it. To me, that's the, the most critical part of, of of what next steps look like for Hockey Canada and maybe for the game as a whole in Canada. And that's what we've heard a lot from our listeners: is they're they're okay, you know, with the sport, which I hope they are. Like this isn't just new to this sport. There's gymnastics, there's football, there's all all kinds of of, of things going on um, that I think as a society we're getting a better place for. But I was surprised to hear Scott Smith say that today. Um, but our listeners are saying they want that house cleaned. I'll go this way with you, Scott. Do you think they could clean house at Hockey Canada with the the people in charge and the board of directors? And do you think that will happen? But also, how would you go about that? Like, it's not a, a small entity. It's not, you know, they are in charge of an enormous corporation, essentially, that going forward would need a lot of new faces. Well, and, and you know, I think that's exactly the, you know, sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts of, you know, what what does come if you are going to make these kinds of systemic changes? And, and, and I think it's fair to say this has been a closed shop for years and years. And it's it, it's been an old boys network, even though I know there are a couple of women on the board of directors for Hockey Canada. But it, this is not, this has been a, an organization that has been very clubbish. They have protected their own. It's clear when you look at the payments that have gone out to victims of sexual uh, assault with, within, uh, under the umbrella of Hockey Canada over the years, and more, uh, there are pending uh, civil suits even as we speak now. So, you know, this is something that has been a perpetual problem over the years. Um, and so the question is, I think your question is a good one, well, how do we find the right people to come in who can ask the hard questions, who come from a different perspective that isn't part of this old boys network, um, who can ask, well, what, what is the culture that we want to have for uh, starting at the, the grassroots, young boys and girls coming into the game all the way up through all of the levels of the game in this country? Who, make, who can make those decisions? And to me, it has to be, you know, you have to you have to bring in people who bring that kind of perspective. I thought it was fascinating, you know, a, a, a release from the, the Canadian women's national team, basically demanding transparency and truth from Hockey Canada, from whom they received their funding, but and and really wanting to be part of the process moving forward. And I think that's, I mean, to me, that's critically important that. Um, that there are women who are involved in this. I think it's important that uh, people who represent or can speak to how victims of sexual assault, uh, what happens to them, why wouldn't they have come forward? Um, how do how do you create a place where it it's not okay for a group of of uh, junior hockey players to think it's okay to carry out the acts that were uh, allegedly carried out in London in 2018 and even before that, in Halifax, in uh, in late 2002, I mean, wh- who who whom think who is going to be able to create a, 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 a template or a culture where young men don't have to be told that no, this kind of sexual behavior is wrong? And I think you know we're, it, it, that those are hard questions, but I think it's important to find the right people who can bring different perspectives to the table. Uh, and the question is, well, how do you identify them? 
who makes the ultimate decision that the old guard has to go. Um, it's it, it, it's a monumental task, but I, I believe it's critically important um, for the game moving forward. Yeah, and just hearing from, like I said, our listeners, and there's been a lot of them today texting, calling in and stuff, saying that they they believe that too, that the, the top needs to change and then they'll still believe in Hockey Canada, but believe in it if it changes, and, and that's the key too. Um, you've covered the game for so long, Scott. Uh, what is the most surprising thing out of this for in, in your mind? Well, like what's I, I what's the I'm most surprised. shocking, I guess? You know, I, I guess the most shocking is that we've got to a point where the national hockey body um, found that the best way to deal with an abhorrent situation like the one in London in 2018 at a Hockey Canada event where young players were uh, given alcohol or had access to alcohol, uh, that that instead of immediately opening up a transparent, oh my gosh, this happened, we contacted the police, we are going to do everything we can to identify the perpetrators of this act, and we are going to make sure there's accountability. The fact is they have been dragged into the light. They would have been happy if no one knew about this. And that's the most disappointing part is that now they have this action plan that they put out last week. All of these things look totally reactionary after they've been caught um, hiding, basically, an event and the, and the cover-up of that event that they wish no one knew about. And I think that's the, that's the saddest part of all of this. And it should be sad for everyone who's connected to the game in the country. Really appreciate your time. And uh, for those listening, I will retweet out on my social media the Daily Faceoff article that Scott, uh, it's a great read. I highly recommend it. And thanks for doing this, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. Very pleased now to bring in Brent Fowler, uh, St. John Ambulance, Manitoba. He, he's their CEO, Chief Executive Officer. Brent, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show today. Yeah, I appreciate you joining us. And I, I mean, how are you personally, but also how are you with St. John Ambulance? Uh, I would imagine the pandemic has been tough to, to do what you do and the great service that you provide. Uh, how has the past two years been? Well, it's certainly been a been a, been a challenge. Uh, we've had our, our ups and downs, I think, just like... Uh, every other organization and business, but, uh, uh, you know, we've survived the, the pandemic and uh, at least so far, and uh, things are actually looking uh, quite positive and bright right now. So, yeah, and I agree with you. And I wanted to ask you more in depth about that is just um, how did it go for people like getting trained on CPR and doing everything else that St. John Ambulance does and the great work? How, how did it function in the past two years just with the mandates and everything else? Sure. Well, we're very lucky as a, as a as an organization to be part of the essential services under the various public health orders. Uh, so we only shut down for six weeks when the pandemic uh, uh, first reached a crisis level in, in March of 2020. But by May, we were up and running. And, you know, we had our, our ups and downs, our peaks and valleys over the last two years, uh, all based on the public health orders. You know, at, at times our classrooms were smaller. At times we spaced uh, people out differently. 
certainly some of the uh, the training protocols in terms of uh, you know students practicing on each other changed and and are still somewhat changed to this day. But you know for the most part we made it work. But there was a lot less people taking training uh, at least in the first year of the pandemic. Perhaps not so much the second year. Okay, so yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. I would imagine it would have been um, tough to to keep training the same amount and the same number of people that you had in the past. Was there a significant decrease, or, or as you said, you you found a way to to make it go at least for some trainers trainees? Right. So we had training going on throughout most of the pandemic, but our classes were were much smaller. Normally, we have up to 18 students in a class, and for a lot of the pandemic, we were running between 8 and 10 students. And as a nonprofit organization, you know, the the less students you put in the classroom, uh, the more difficult it is to to fund those operations. So it was certainly a financial challenge, but we likely saw somewhere around a 40% decrease uh, in 2020 over over 2019, uh, not quite as bad in 2021. Uh, and 2022 has actually been uh, quite strong. We're actually up over 10% over 2019 training levels. So we're we're really pleased with that. Oh, that's great news, especially when down 40, but, but now up over 10, because it really is essential service, as you said, that you provide. I'm glad you're categorized that way. But categorized that way or not, it's an essential service of learning CPR. Well, that's right. And you, you just never know from one moment to another what's going to happen. And the likelihood is if you have to do CPR, it's going to be on someone you know, likely a loved one. And there's nothing worse than having somebody collapse and stop breathing and, and, and no one knows what to do. So it's, uh, it, it's all about saving lives. And we do that every day, training tens of thousands of Manitobans every year. And what in my mind is one of the most important skills that any person needs to know. Yeah, let's delve in exactly what you do now that we've got sort of a bit of the background of what you've uh, gone through and, and how your training had to, to sort of pivot like uh, many other things. Uh, remind everybody what the Good Service St. John Ambulance does. Right, so we're the uh, the leading charity in Canada for first aid and, and CPR training, and we take the proceeds or the profits, so to speak, that we make off first aid training, and we invest that in community services, uh, which is our medical first responders that you see at you know bombers games and the concert hall and fairs and rodeos and walks, and then we have our therapy dog program, which provides a. Uh, uh, social visits in personal care homes, hospitals, uh, uh, workplaces, and all sorts of facilities over Manitoba. And we do that all as a charity with very little external support. So when you take a first aid course with St. John, not only are you learning a life-saving skill, your, your money actually is going right back into the community right here in Manitoba. And so along those lines, uh, how do people get involved if they hear this? Well, the easiest way is to go to our website, which is sja.ca, sja.ca, or they're welcome to call the office at 204-784-7000. Here in Winnipeg, we run training courses seven days a week, 360 days of the year. Uh, We certainly have room for uh, for, for more students in our classrooms, and we're certainly looking for volunteers. Our, Our volunteer numbers did drop a bit. As well, uh, as well over the pandemic, and, and we're rebuilding both our programs. So, you know, we welcome people uh, wherever they may be interested. Yeah, and, and that's important too because there hasn't been, I don't think, an organization we've spoken to that, that volunteer numbers are down. Uh, how can people volunteer? What will they be doing? Well, again, it depends where their, their interest is. If they uh, are interested in our medical first responder program, doing first aid at public events, that, that's one option. Uh, a second option is if they have a dog, and they think the dog would be appropriate as a, as a, as a social service animal. Uh, there's that opportunity. 
And we also do play a role uh, in uh, in disaster and emergency response, and, and that role has actually started to grow over the pandemic. Uh, so we have opportunities uh, there. Uh, we're also looking for people that would be interested in becoming uh, first aid instructors. It's a great uh, uh, opportunity for people that uh, you know are looking for flexible flexible work and uh, at the end of the day want to make a difference in the community as well so lots of opportunity we just encourage people to reach out to us either via the website or a phone call and we'd be glad uh, happy to steer them in the right direction are your requests for your services gone up uh, as well you said 10 percent participants but also i'm just wondering uh, for events and as things get uh, more and more open uh, i would imagine more and more calls are coming in they absolutely are. So for the medical first responders, I would say we're, we're back at 100% anyway of 2019, uh, perhaps even higher. It's our therapy dog program. I, I think the, the folks uh, or everyone out there is realizing that the, the importance that a dog can have in, in the quality of life. Uh, those numbers have gone through the roof. And what's interesting is it's more and more workplaces now that are asking for it, including hospitals, you know, large corporations and some of the office towers downtown. So we've seen a huge, a huge growth on the therapy dog side for sure. You know what, that's interesting too and, and good to hear that more and more people understand and maybe that's a result of the pandemic to just understand in general healthcare awareness that this is a great service and, and we should train as much of our employees as we can. Absolutely. I think we all had our eyes opened in a lot of different respects uh, during the pandemic. But from our, you know, from our point of view, we've, we've heard consistently from our, you know, from our students, from our clients, from our volunteers, just how important it is that the work that we do in the community continue and grow. And that's really what we're focused on today. Brent, thanks very much for sharing your insight and uh, all you do and uh, continue good work to you and uh, everybody involved. Thank you. I'll pass it on to the team. Yes. Uh, Brent Fowler, Chief Executive Officer, St. John Ambulance at Manitoba. And uh, you can check them out on their website as well at mb.stjohntraining.ca.